0: If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this is Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Renee. Um, As a uh, newly appointed elder in the church, I'm going to create a new position, uh, public relations, and uh, I'm appointing Luke and Katie to that role. Um, Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. uh, Obviously, uh, so excited to be with you guys. Um, Love the opportunity to bring the scriptures and preach uh, from God's word. Um, I'm just going to just going to dive in, actually. Uh, So today's text is awesome. It is filled to the brim with proclamations of the manifold glories of Jesus Christ. True spiritual nourishment for the hungry soul. And rightly so. As we consider the context, the Holy Spirit has fallen on Jesus' disciples. Uh, They have poured out in the streets with ecstatic praise for God. Um, God has sent down this fire, this Holy Spirit, onto them and has inspired them To speak, to praise God, to reach out, to proclaim Jesus in multiple languages. Languages they don't even know. A literal reversal of the Tower of Babel. Now, empowered by the same spirit, Peter stands in the midst of the assembly to proclaim Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. Publicly, for the first time. This is truly incredible. This passage marks the first time that the gospel as we know it, proclaimed as faith in the resurrection of Jesus to save you from your sins, has been declared to mankind. Peter's sermon is the start of the Great Commission. If you don't know it, the Great Commission is a command given by Jesus to his disciples before his ascension into heaven from Matthew's gospel and he says this he says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 which we looked at last week tells us that there were men Jews devout Jews gathered from all these different nations speaking these different languages and they had converged on Jerusalem likely to celebrate the Passover And then stayed 50 days, and now it's Pentecost. Pentecost just means 50 days. And so here it is, the gospel going to the nations. The nations assembled at Pentecost. Now I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed uh, by the responsibility of preaching this, considering the gravity, the import of this event. Let's get started. First, let's refresh our memory. Last week, Brian preached to us Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In it, we saw that Pentecost, that this outpouring of God's Spirit, was one of seven uh, occurred at one of seven major feasts in the Hebrew calendar. Each of these feasts has an eschatological meaning or value. Right? What that means is that the feasts were instituted not just so that people could remember something God had done in the past, although that's the main reason that they were created, but so that as the people continued to celebrate these feasts year after year, it would stir in their hearts a hope for some future fulfillment. Each feast, each celebration had a past meaning and a future fulfillment. Pentecost was no different. Then Brian explained to us how these events about the spirit falling and Jesus' disciples going out into the streets, how that in and of itself was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And this is exactly where Peter picks up the mic. The theme of fulfilled Old Testament prophecies is heavy throughout this passage. And We'll continue to reconsider them. You simply cannot escape this idea that God is fulfilling his promises to his people and they are in the midst of it. So as we prepare to dive into Peter's post-Pentecost preaching, I did it better in the first service. Peter's post-Pentecost preaching. I want to lay out the path for today. First, we'll consider uh, Peter's arguments to this devout Jewish crowd. Then we will consider the events of Acts chapter 2 and what they mean for those of us who are still considering the claims of Jesus. And then finally, we will discuss what... It means for those of us who have already called upon the name of Jesus and what we can learn from Peter's evangelistic boldness. Okay, so Peter, like any great preacher, has three points in his sermon. The first is Pentecost or this, what you see here, these people praising God in these different languages. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy from the book of Joel, marking the beginning of the last days. Second Jesus's resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And third, you killed Jesus, who is both the fulfillment of David's prophecy and Joel's prophecy. And through fulfilling these prophecies, Jesus has proved himself to be Lord and Christ. So Peter references three different Old Testament texts to make his case. The first comes from the book of Joel. Joel was a prophet about 930 BC. So that's about a thousand years before these events and acts took place. And Joel was speaking in a time when spirit empowerment or the idea that the God's spirit would be on a person or in a person was very rare. Maybe a person, one person in a generation. But Joel speaks of a day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, Now the phrase for pour out there in the Greek actually means something more like an unprecedented deluge. And that's exactly what we saw in verses one through 13. That the spirit came down on an entire room, 120 people assembled, and then they spilled out into the streets empowered by the spirit, filled with joy, praises coming from them, ecstatic um, praises and um, speaking the works, the mighty works of God, the scripture tells us. Now, Joel goes on to recount that this access to God's spirit would be associated with an experience of power and that the infilling or the empowerment would have no barriers, no age restrictions, no class requirements. I think we have the text. Here it says here, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, male and female, young and old, servants, slave and free, everyone would have access to God's spirit and to God's power. Now, this word prophesy can be a scary word. It's kind of a strange religious word. You know, maybe it's mysterious or it feels like, like there's a gravity to it. And that's, that's appropriate. But I'd like to demystify it for you a little bit. Uh, Larry Mowry, our eldest elder, uh, was explaining to us what prophecy is in our Tuesday morning prayer meeting just last week. And Larry said this. He said, prophecy is simply to receive an impression from the Lord or a message from the Lord and to share it with others. David Peterson, a New Testament scholar, he defines prophecy this way. Prophecy is spirit-directed ministry, disclosing or revealing the plan of God in redemption. This is clearly the result of the divided tongues at Pentecost. In fact, verse 14, the Greek for Peter stood to address them, is the same phrase that's used for uh, the people were speaking as the spirit gave them utterance. So what Luke is trying to convince us is that even when Peter stands to give this monologue, that it itself is a wonderful act of spirit-inspired revelation of God's plan redemption. Furthermore, Joel mentions in his prophecy that there are other evidences of um, <clears throat> this that will that will accompany this deluge of spirit immersion. Right? in verses 19 and 20, he mentions wonders in the heavens and signs on earth, including the sun being turned to darkness. Now, I can't help but think that as Peter stood and quoted these verses from Joel, realizing that he was standing in the midst of the fulfillment of this prophecy, that his he was he had goosebumps. Like the the hairs were standing on end, on his arms. Because if you think about it, Peter, Peter was likely present at the time of Jesus's baptism. And what does the scripture tell us? That when Jesus came up out of the water, there was an audible voice from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the sky opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Signs from heaven. And not only that, but today, on this day, Peter had been in the room when the Holy Spirit fell again on mankind and came in with the sound of a rushing wind and the visible appearance of tongues of fire falling on each one. Not only that, but Peter was present at Jesus' crucifixion. And the scripture tells us that about the sixth hour at noon, The sun was darkened and refused to shine, just as Joel predicted. Peter, having been an eyewitness to these things, stands up in the assembly, convinced of the urgency of his message because he has personally experienced the beginning of the last days. Now, with regard to that, Joel uses two phrases, the last days and the day of the Lord to nail home the importance of these events. Every Jew within earshot of Peter would have known what that meant. The last days. The last days would be a time preceding God's final judgment. God's final judgment against human rebellion and against human wickedness. And that that judgment would come on the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. So not only is Peter explaining that this ridiculous scene at Pentecost is evidence of God's spirit or God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises, but that it is marking the coming of God's day of reckoning. Now, this has significant implications for the conquered Jewish nation. At this point in their history, they have been Uh, ruled by other powers, foreign powers for about 600 years. In their minds, I'm sure that they were thinking, what greater evil could God be preparing to come and punish besides this oppressive political and military rule by these Roman pagans? I mean, that's probably what the average or common Jewish person felt at the time that Peter stood to address them. And the end of Joel's prophecy only solidifies a thought like this because it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I can hear it now. Probably shouts from the crowd. Yes, we will be saved. We, God's true people. God is going to come and he's going to judge these Romans, these heathens who worship false gods and he's going to set up his kingdom. But Peter doesn't follow that line of reasoning. Instead, he flips the script. And he does so by making completely—he um, so bold and offensive statements about Jesus. In verse 22, he says this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The skeptics in Peter's audience would have had one immediate objection. Ha, if Jesus was God's man, how is he dead? God would never allow it. And Peter's response is that God didn't allow it. God ordained it by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, I could preach an entire sermon on this issue right here. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. But I'll suffice to say this, Peter does not find a problem with these two issues. In Peter's mind, he is convinced that God ordained it, that God brought it about And that it was God's pleasure to crush him, as Isaiah tells us. But that his audience, they are accountable because they crucified the Lord of glory. Peter's second point to his audience is this Jesus' ministry, his death, and his resurrection are fulfillment of God's promises to King David. Have you ever been homeless? It's hard for me to imagine, but no doubt some of us here don't have to imagine it. Alone on the streets, no place to go, no place to call your own. Always feeling like a, an intrusion or a burden, unwanted. What about being a homeless family? Can you Imagine a mother watching her children sleep in the backseat of the car. No home to bring them to. What about an entire homeless people group? An oppressed nation with no land to call your own. Sure, you have your own language, your own religion, your own culture, but no place to practice them. For centuries, this had been the experience of the Jewish people. So when I say that they were eager for God to deliver them from their pagan rulers and establish his kingdom, once again, you can start to understand the intensity of their anticipation of the Messiah. As Peter makes his second point, he turns to this shared hope. If you're not an Old Testament scholar, then uh, you may not know this, but I'll let you in on a little secret. King David, kind of a big deal to the ancient Jewish mind. No, he's not just a little shepherd boy who killed the giant. In fact, King David in the Jewish mind of the first century is the prototype of God's faithful servant, God's chosen king. In David is wrapped up all the hopes of the nation. In fact, God had promised to establish an everlasting kingdom and to place one of David's descendants on that throne. So when the Romans end up ruling the Jews in the first century, the obvious conclusion was that God is going to fulfill his promise on the day of the Lord and remove the Caesar and implant his chosen king. Now, Peter references David's writings to make the argument that Jesus is the chosen one of God. Jesus' resurrection is Peter's proof that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic hope. Now, this next quote is from Psalm 16. Peter references it. And in verse 27, we have this line. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Remember, Peter has stood up among the disciples and is claiming that they are all eyewitnesses to Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. For 40 days, they had touched him, spoken to him, eaten meals with him, and they had seen his empty tomb. Not only that, but when they began to proclaim his resurrection, They weren't refuted by the Jewish leaders or the Roman officials. I mean, it would have been easy to put an end to this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Just get that body and drag it all around the streets. The Romans didn't care. It's not like they were uh, concerned about the impropriety. They had hung him on a cross and left him there for all to see. But they didn't do that, did they? Verse 33 through 35 say this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing, this ecstatic speech, this spirit-empowered proclaiming of the works of God. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The significance of this second Davidic prophecy is this. God had promised David a descendant who would sit on the throne with an everlasting kingdom. The obvious challenge is how would God accomplish this? But Peter makes it clear that a resurrected Jesus is an incorruptible king whose body did not see decay. Peter delivers his own eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Jesus, fulfilling this hope, this prophecy. Jesus, from the lineage of the still-deceased David, is now the everlasting king at God's right hand. In this text, uh, in this passage, Peter says to himself, he says, uh, uh, David, whose tomb is still with us. Likely, Peter was speaking not more than half a mile from the place where David's tomb could be found. David's intact tomb could be found. But he told the people, the empty tomb proclaims that Jesus Christ is the king. And not simply a King's at God's right hand figuratively, as in a title or a position, but physically, we saw him ascend into heaven. His physical body lifted up, and he is now seated at God's right hand. Jesus himself referenced these verses from Psalm 110 during his own earthly ministry. And in Luke chapter 20, Jesus introduces the idea that this is actually a messianic prophecy. And Peter picks up the theme and asserts quite forcefully his own conclusion in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is, Jesus is Lord, King, and Christ, Messiah, all hail King Jesus. Peter asserts Jesus' divinity and his co-equal authority with God, God the Father, while arguing for Jesus' singular fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. This would have been an earth-shattering revelation for Peter's audience. In Jesus, every Old Testament prophetic hope converges He is the Lord that will reign in an everlasting kingdom. He is the Messiah who will deliver God's people from death. He is the key that unlocks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he is the judge who will usher in the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Then in verse 37, we see exactly what we would expect. Peter gives a rousing sermon filled with obscure Old Testament passages. And everyone within earshot immediately confesses their sin And becomes a believer in Jesus. Well, a perfect ending to an exciting story, right? Not so fast. I'll be honest. I didn't buy it at first. I mean, sure, it's it's in the text. I'm not arguing with the historicity of the biblical account. But it just didn't make sense to me. If Peter could so easily convince this crowd that Jesus was the Messiah, why didn't they Figure that out before they crucified him. I mean, these men, just 50 days earlier, had been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And now they've just decided that Jesus was innocent. He was, oh, he's the Messiah. Ah, oh, sorry, my bad, oops. As I considered this issue of the messianic hope and where they went wrong, I think it's important to remember a few things. Let's remember that the Jewish nation was looking for a political savior, not a spiritual one. Their primary preoccupation was with their Roman occupation. And one of the reasons that Jesus was abandoned by the crowds, the same crowds that had shouted Hosanna in the highest when he rode into Jerusalem and crucify him on the day that he went to the cross is because Jesus offered them not the Messiah that they wanted, but the Messiah that they needed. When the people realized that Jesus was not planning to overthrow Caesar and establish the Davidic kingdom, their disappointment turned to anger and they gladly turned him over to the Romans to crucify him. Now, most of you know that I like a good movie and uh, especially with an unexpected twist at the end. I still remember the first time that I saw The Usual Suspects in this uh, masterfully written Academy Award-winning thriller, the big reveal changes everything. That's exactly how I felt. I said, what? How can this be? So I gave it away in the nine o'clock. I didn't give it away at Kirkwood, so I won't give it away again. But when you discover... Kaiser associates true identity, the criminal mastermind. It leaves your head spinning and it forces you to ask, what was that? How did I miss it? And you have to go back and watch again. And now, because you know the twists, everything else has a completely different meaning. This is essentially the experience that Peter's audience has when he is preaching to them Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Not Jesus, the failed revolutionary, but Jesus, the hero of God's redemptive plan. Jesus, both Lord and Christ. It is this portrayal of Jesus that convicts the crowds of their terrible mistake. In their ignorance, they rejected God's perfect provision for spiritual salvation in hope of an earthly revolutionary who would lead a violent political coup. And now they found themselves standing in opposition to both God and the resurrected king. And it was this realization that engendered the response we see in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And so we too are left to ask, what shall we do? Here are three things that we must do in response to Peter's sermon. Number one, recognize. Number two, embrace. And number three, communicate. We must recognize Jesus as Lord in Christ. The theme of fulfilled prophecy, as I said, is all over this text. Peter states that the Holy Spirit's coming is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' death was a fulfillment. Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment. And Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand is a fulfillment. Given that he is preaching to people with fairly extensive Old Testament knowledge, appealing to the prophecies brings into focus for them the true reality, the true identity of Jesus Christ. Connecting to their shared Jewish heritage and history draws his audience in. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. We have this text. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, that is, dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The language of God's eternal plan adds surety and finality to the thought of being in the last days. Peter brings into focus this reality, the reality of facing judgment based on what his hearers would do with this Jesus, the fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. So too, we must decide what we will do with this Jesus. I assure you that no one left the sound of Peter's voice without deciding what they would do. With Jesus. Number two, we must embrace, we must embrace Jesus as Lord and Christ. It's not simply enough to recognize Jesus as special. Peter's audience readily acknowledged that God had done miracles through Jesus. He said, you yourselves know that God has attested to him with signs and wonders and miracles, yet they still crucified him. They didn't want a Messiah who would help them make peace with God or forgive their wrongdoing, or even heal their spiritual brokenness. They certainly didn't want a leader who was constantly calling them to repent, to change the way that they were living. They wanted a Messiah who would give them earthly blessings, power, influence, comfort, and security. And we are no different. How often do we pursue other functional saviors, rejecting God's plan and God's Messiah and choosing our own path. That was the sin in the Garden of Eden. And that was the sin at the cross. And it is our indictment today. You may have come here unsure of what you think about Jesus. Let me assure you that though nearly two millennia have passed since Peter stood up and spoke to his audience, the same urgency with which he speaks to you, I plead with you. Consider this Jesus embrace this Jesus as Lord and Christ, not the Jesus from your childhood church songs, not the Jesus that the political pundits love to misquote, and not the Jesus from your favorite episode of South Park, but Jesus, the resurrected King, revealed as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Back in the Advent series, I preached that one of the primary responsibilities of Christ is that of judge. Jesus is the judge before whom everyone will stand and give an account of their life. You may be thinking, I didn't crucify him. Make no mistake. Crucifying Jesus may have been the most heinous crime, but it is not the only crime. Rejecting him as Lord and Savior, failing to be baptized to receive forgiveness in his name, Neglecting to repent. These are all more than enough to incur his judgment. Praise God that there is a time before the day of the Lord when you can be saved. When instead of raining down fire and brimstone, he is raining down the fire of his spirit. Rather than judgment, there is blessing, not wrath, but grace, an unprecedented deluge of grace. A.W. Tozer says it this way. The cross is the lightning rod of grace that short circuits God's wrath to Christ so that only the light of his love remains for the believer. You can not only escape God's wrath today, but by placing faith in Jesus, his spirit will come upon you. He will fill you with praise to God and give you power for living, just like he did for these disciples 2000 years ago. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In verse 40, Peter declares this. He says, save yourselves from this crooked and perverse generation. This is an important warning for us. The prevailing attitude today is I am king of my life and you are king of yours. But this stands in total opposition to Jesus Christ as king. Many will fail to respond to God's call to repentance because of their unwillingness to cut ties with the culture. Don't let your grip on the culture or its grip on you prevent you from embracing this Jesus. Third, we must communicate Jesus as Lord and Christ. Maybe you have already crossed the line of faith, but have you neglected the gift of the Spirit in your life? It is possible to embrace Jesus, yet fail to live an empowered life. We can be so distracted from God's mission that we live as though the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales. Some of us, some of us likely feel so disqualified that we assume that the opportunity to experience new life in God is reserved for others. People more clever than us, more talented or more spiritual. I'm here to remind you that this Peter, the same Peter who stood and spoke on this day in 3,000 place their faith in Jesus Christ is the same Peter who betrayed the Lord Jesus in his hour of need. Not only did Peter have character flaws, but he was an uneducated man, likely dropped out of school when he was 13 to become a laborer, a fisherman. Yet God delighted to fill him with his Holy Spirit and empower him to be used for the glory of God That's why we believe so strongly in the bless rhythms. The story of Pentecost is that when we begin with prayer, God delights to fill us with his Holy Spirit and give us power for living. And then we can go and we can share our story effectively under the influence of the Spirit and see God's glory in our world. as I think about Peter's message, there were five things that I think can help us as we prepare to faithfully share our story under the power of the Spirit. First, Peter kept his emphasis on Jesus. Peter doesn't spend a lot of time discussing peripheral issues. He's not trying to convince people that they should go to temple more often. You know, I think it's easy for us to to fall into this trap of trying to, of talking about faith, um, of trying to maybe defend Christian practices. The fact of the matter is that faith does not save unless it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity cannot save unless it is presented to people as a radical trust and embrace of Jesus as Lord. Christian practices do not save. The author of the Christian faith saves. Furthermore, we can see how Peter constructs his story. He says, look at the extent that God has gone through to reach us. He gave us prophecies from thousands of years ago, and he is fulfilling them. Peter says, look at the power of God to save us. He resurrected a man from the dead and then brought him to the highest place. And he says, look at the goodness of God in saving us. Though we rejected him, there is an opportunity now to receive God, to be embraced by God, to become a part of God's family with no judgment, not as a second-class citizen, but as a child, a son. Not only that, but they had seen the evidence They had seen men and women running in the streets, shouting the praises of God, an ecstatic overflow of joy. Imagine if the world saw Christians living an unadulterated life, known more for what we love than what we're against. Number two, Peter builds bridges with his audience. He says to them, brothers, he's not afraid to say, We are witnesses and you crucified the Lord. But then he leans in and he says, I was like you. If it weren't for Jesus, I would be just like you. And when they respond in verse 37, they also say, brothers, what must we do? Peter's connected with his audience. Number three, Peter explains the problem that Jesus solves. Too often we think that by living a good life, People will consider Jesus's claims. Yet the truth is that these men had seen Jesus's miracles, had heard about his ministry, and they still crucified him. They saw his exemplary life. It wasn't enough to convince them that Jesus was Lord. It wasn't until Peter preached to them, explained to them and presented Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's plan, God's chosen man, That their eyes were opened and they understood who Jesus really was. We aren't just living a mediocre life and we just need a little bit of Jesus to make our lives great again. Jesus isn't an add on to life, Jesus is essential to life, and that's how we must present him. Because of our actions, we are estranged from the Creator objects of his wrath. We are his enemies. The only way to repair the breach is by forsaking our saviors and embracing God's savior. Number four, Peter explains the benefits of following Jesus. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved And verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And number five, finally, Peter brings them to a point of decision. What must we do? If people did not ask, what must we do? They cannot be changed. Proclaiming the message of Jesus isn't about giving people information. It's about sparking life change. In fact, it is God's preferred method for bringing about spiritual birth. Recognize, embrace, communicate. We must recognize Jesus as Lord and Christ. We must embrace Jesus as Lord and Christ. And we must communicate Jesus as Lord and Christ. Let's pray.